Hey everybody, Magnus here. So, the first picture of Ben Affleck in full Batman gear was released yesterday. But I don't really give a shit because my car was broken into tonight while I was at work. That's the bad news. The good news is, nothing was stolen, but, I mean, you know, come on, is that really good news? I mean, my iPod was left just sitting on top of what was, once upon a time, the front passenger window of my car. Anybody else think that's kind of weird? The iPod was just left there? I mean, what's up with that? Is my iPod not good enough to steal? Did they not like my playlists? I don't know. I don't know if I should be relieved or offended by this. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Ah! Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own angled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I usually talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But lately, it's been all movies all the time because, let's face it, I've spent the majority of this podcast talking well, mostly about comics. Because of that, for the series at hand, I wanted to talk about movies. And not just movies, but sequels. And not just sequels, but sequels that I think have gotten an unfair reputation. Either for being better than they actually are, or for being lumps of shit that everybody's afraid to call lumps of shit. So basically, I've wanted to spend these episodes setting the record straight on that stuff. And I think I've done a pretty good job of it too. Each episode has been more awesome than the last, oddly enough. And even I never saw that one coming. Now, normally, a miniseries like this would go for six episodes. But this one's only lasted for five episodes because coming soon is my epic, epic, epic 50th episode. But anyway, so I saved the best and arguably most contentious for the last. And the reason for that is because, well, fuck it, I want more feedback to read on this show. I'll cop to that. Anyway, so the movie this time out is The Karate Kid Part 3. I chose this because 
Apparently, I'm the only one in the room who likes it. Which is mystifying to me, because I'm part of the same fandom that has embraced some pretty fucked up sequels when you come right down to it. I mean, shit, if you go on to any average comic book nerd forum, you won't alienate as many people as you think by arguing the merits of Rocky III or Batman Returns. Fuck me, if you try to tell someone that Karate Kid 3 absolutely merits inclusion as a real Karate Kid movie, people are coming after you with knives, torches, and pitchforks. It's fucking insane. So, yes, in, in some sense, you could say this is me kind of sort of baiting my audience. But more broadly, I'd like to argue the merits of the film and at least spark up a conversation. Isn't that what I'm here to do? Let's let you guys go out there with your friends and say, man, listen to this fucking guy. He likes Karate Kid 3. You believe that shit? Man, that's got to take some balls, I swear. Who the hell does this skinny little ginger think he is anyway, the fuck widget? You know, stuff like that. Anyway. One reason Karate Kid 3 works for me is because it's clearly the closing act of a trilogy. And it does what any good third movie in a trilogy ought to do and revisit the first movie. See, there's a fucked up cycle to a lot of trilogies. Not all of them, but a lot of them seem to follow a familiar pattern. The first movie establishes the hero, the protagonist, the main character, whatever you want to call him. Shows you who he is, what he's like, where he comes from, all that shit. And then it turns him into a hero. The second movie shows the hero kicking ass and doing all the stuff you wanted him to do in the first movie. But... It's not enough to see him on top of his game. The hero usually faces his arguably coolest, most interesting villain in the entire series right here in the second movie. The third movie thus revisits the themes and conflicts of the first movie vis-a-vis -vis the same villain, or a relative of the same villain, <clears throat> or his best friend, or his garbage man, or, or whatever else. But that first movie's themes and conflicts and villains and other shit all come back in the third film. And generally, this coincides not only with the hero's fall from grace, but his mission to rebuild himself even stronger than before. And if that's not a picture-perfect description of the Karate Kid trilogy, I don't know what is. Karate Kid 3 kicks off by literally revisiting the first movie. John Kreese is a man who's lost everything. His dojo, his students, his life, by which I mean his lifestyle, everything. And this is all thanks to Daniel and Mr. Miyagi not only beating the shit out of all of his students in the tournament from the first movie, but from his own actions after the tournament where he beat up on his own students. And then Mr. Miyagi had to save the day. Now, bear in mind, Mr. Miyagi was at the same time merciful and cruel to John Kreese. He let him live. He didn't have to do that. Kreese attacked his own students and was choking one of them. Now, I'm no lawyer, but I'm pretty sure any action Mr. Miyagi took at that moment would have been completely justifiable in the eyes of the law. Mr. Miyagi could have killed Kreese. That's made very clear. But Mr. Miyagi let him live. His rationalization for that is, living is sometimes the worst punishment. And there are cases where that's true. But Mr. Miyagi's act of mercy set up everything that happens in Karate Kid 3. 
So, to put it another way, it's all fun and games until somebody's nose gets honked. After that, John Kreese and Terry Silver, war buddies from way back, come up with an elaborate scheme for revenge. And their vengeance is the product of pure, cold-blooded evil. And while you're thinking about all that, though, I got something else for you. In a weird kind of way, Kreese is the villain from the first Karate Kid. And by that same logic, Mr. Miyagi is the hero. The conflicts of the first film are ultimately between Miyagi and Kreese. Now, true, those conflicts are usually executed through their deputies. Daniel for Mr. Miyagi and Johnny Lawrence for John Kreese. But Daniel and Johnny are both kind of pawns in a sense. There's a larger struggle that's being played out here. Will Mr. Miyagi's values, honesty, and sense of fair play win? Or will victory in the first Karate Kid movie go to John Kreese's brand of no-holds-barred, anything-goes, school of dirty pool? Understand something. It's beneath Mr. Miyagi's simplest fucking principles to even acknowledge something as profane and common as a karate tournament. This is a discipline. It's not a fucking sport. But Mr. Miyagi has other motives. First, his friend Daniel is getting the hell beaten out of him on a fairly regular basis. So there's that to consider. But second, this discipline is being profaned and abused just so some fucking teenager can have a power trip. This has to stop. Period. End of discussion. And if that means participating in some fucking lowly karate tournament, Mr. Miyagi's willing to play ball. Sometimes a man has to rise above principle to get the job done. The objective here is not just to sue for peace. Mr. Miyagi could attain that by telling Daniel to file charges against Johnny. That was never the point. The point is that both Johnny and Kreese have to be taught a lesson. But even more than that, Daniel needs to learn self-confidence. And obviously Mr. Miyagi doesn't want Daniel to attain confidence in a real fight. A tournament that operates according to rules and safety is the best path for Daniel under the circumstances. My point here is Mr. Miyagi had every possible fucking reason to enroll Daniel in the tournament. Normally that kind of shit is beneath him, but he lets it happen in the first movie because it accomplished so many different objectives. So when Daniel starts talking about defending his title in the tournament in Karate Kid 3, Mr. Miyagi refuses to even consider it. And understand, there's nothing in it for him. Mr. Miyagi made his point. He won an honorable piece honorably. Daniel learned some important lessons, and let's cut the shit. If Daniel could win his fight with Chosen in the second movie, defending his title at the tournament shouldn't even be on his radar. Compared to Chosen, anybody Daniel faces at, the, at any tournament is a piker. But it is important to Daniel. This is one of the few real accomplishments he's ever had in his young life. It's the one time he's ever been recognized and awarded for anything. He's placed a very false sense of importance in this. So in a sense, he's staked his identity on being a karate champion. This is unspeakably baffling to Mr. Miyagi since there's no honor at stake with the tournament. There's no score to settle. There's nobody who needs to be taught a lesson. 
there's nothing to be gained from another stupid tournament. And of all people, Daniel should know this isn't a game. Daniel learned some real shit in the first movie. He was tough enough to be dangerous, but the second movie was a game changer. Daniel fought Chosen in what should have been a fight to the death. There were no referees there. And what Daniel should have learned is that this shit isn't a game. Karate is lethal. You could kill somebody with this shit. But he didn't. Call it a teenager's vanity, but Daniel survived the fight with Chosen and he took all the wrong lessons from it. And now he wants to defend his title in the tournament. This is the first time that Daniel and Mr. Miyagi have ever had a real disagreement about something. Up to this point, their relationship's been predicated upon the karate model of a master and a student. Mr. Miyagi is clearly the teacher. And Daniel, for his part,'s always been a very apt pupil. The second tournament is the first crack in the foundation of their friendship. Now moving on to other stuff, Terry Silver is able to exploit all of this by using a hired gun, Mike Barnes, to provoke Daniel and do whatever it takes to get him back into the ring to defend the title. Barnes is a decorated karate champion who doesn't even know the meaning of the word honor. He fights to win, by any means necessary. Under other circumstances, he'd have been the consummate Cobra Kai student. Knowing full well that Mr. Miyagi won't train Daniel to defend the title, Silver six Barnes on him and then plays the role of Mr. Nice Guy who offers to train Daniel to defend himself. Like I said, Daniel learned in the second movie that karate ain't nothing to mess with. You have to respect the skills that you've learned. This ain't a game. And it for fucking sure isn't a tournament. This stuff can kill people. What Daniel's already learned is enough to take someone's life. Think about that for a minute. Daniel's a free-wheeling, fun-loving guy. He never goes looking for trouble. If there's any way to avoid conflict, he takes it. But make no mistake, he could fucking kill somebody if he wanted to. There are very few people Daniel's liable to meet in life that are any kind of physical match for him. Daniel's a weapon. That means Terry has a twofold objective. First, Terry Silver takes the weapon Daniel's become and tries to turn him. Make him even more lethal. Make him even deadlier. Teach him to use not just the karate Mr. Miyagi taught him, but add dirty fighting tactics to that as well. Second, Silver knows damn good and well this will only further drive Daniel and Mr. Miyagi apart. Divide and conquer. For Daniel's own part, this is his dark night of the soul. He's lost two girlfriends in one year. One cheated on him and ran off with somebody. And then he had to leave the other one behind in Okinawa. On top of that, Daniel wants the fortune and glory of defending his championship title in the karate tournament. And for the first time in his life, he can't depend upon his best friend, Mr. Miyagi, to be there for him and support him. And this is after Daniel's invested his college fund in a joint business venture. Daniel could have let Mr. Miyagi wallow in the squalor of unemployment, but instead, he took every dime he had to his name and bought Mr. Miyagi a brand new business and inventory. And this guy can't return the fucking favor with a few training sessions and workouts? As if all that wasn't bad enough. <clears throat> now he's got some lunatic out there gunning for him and trying to force him into the tournament. 
and when Daniel tries to refuse him, he gets the shit beaten out of him. This is really the first time Daniel's karate's failed him. I mean, yeah, he got jumped back in Okinawa, but he was outnumbered and usually he got sucker punched. But he faced Barnes one-on-one, man-to-man, and he lost. Keep in mind, Barnes didn't catch Daniel off guard. Barnes stood idly by while Daniel beat the piss out of his little minion. And Barnes' thug? Once upon a time, that would have been Daniel's worst nightmare. These days, that's Daniel's coffee break. Daniel dispenses with that guy without even breaking a sweat. That's how good he is now. But then he and Barnes face each other on equal footing. And understand, Daniel gave Barnes his best fight, all of his best moves. This stuff should have taken Barnes down. Hell, Daniel's mopped the floor with people using lighter moves than that. But Barnes took everything Daniel gave him, chewed it up, spit it out, and then kicked the fuck out of him. And once again, Mr. Miyagi had to come to the rescue, and he won the fight in less than 10 seconds. So Daniel not only got humiliated in front of his girl with that ass-kicking, but then he had to suffer Mr. Miyagi hauling his ass out of the fire once again. Honestly, Daniel could just use a friend right now. So what the fuck is Mr. Miyagi's problem? Throughout the entire movie, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel spend most of their time talking past each other. That's why I think Daniel was totally okay with it when Jessica friend-zoned him. He wasn't necessarily looking for love to begin with. Don't get me wrong, he wouldn't have turned it down, he's a guy, but what he really needed was a friend. He needed someone to believe in him. And let's face it, he needed someone to validate his decision to go against Mr. Miyagi's orders about the tournament. When Jessica supported Daniel's decision, she thought of it that she was just taking her her new friend's side. She had no idea what that really meant. Daniel might have, I'm not really sure, but Jessica for damn sure didn't know how important and inviolable the master-student relationship is. So, you could say that Jessica's presence in this movie, her decision to support Daniel, and her overall friendship was actually a negative when all's said and done. Daniel needed someone to tell him he was doing the right thing when, deep down, he knew he wasn't. Jessica didn't know any better, so of course she supported him. As to the other, Mr. Miyagi doesn't see a problem when Daniel faces the exact same circumstances as in the first movie. It's obvious that Barnes is gunning for him. And hell, he even wants to settle it in the tournament. Daniel just can't get his head around why Mr. Miyagi's being so damn stubborn. It started off being about fortune and glory for Daniel, but before too long, it's personal. These thugs waltzed into Daniel's place of business and later his fucking home beat his ass and threatened him with worse if he didn't fight. I mean, fuck, what's it going to take for Mr. Miyagi to get it? Daniel, though, isn't getting the larger point. This is passing bullshit. Sure, Daniel's gotten kicked around a little bit, but it'll all be over after the tournament comes and goes and he doesn't enter it. Mr. Miyagi doesn't realize there's a larger plot going on here. And if he did, I think it'd be fair to say he'd have made different choices. But he didn't, so he didn't. Daniel has nobody else to turn to, so when Terry Silver offers to train him, he accepts the offer. I mean, hey, why not? It's not like he's being taught by John Kreese. Even Daniel knows that would just be unacceptable. But training from Silver? Eh, what's the worst that could happen? 
Well, Daniel finds out very fucking quickly what could go wrong when he and Jessica are at the dance club and some punk tries to pick a fight. Up to now, Daniel's avoided physical conflict anytime he can. But the punk mouths off and then shoves Daniel. Once. And without missing a beat, Daniel breaks the dude's nose. Now, I'm a big believer in self-defense and all that, but, I mean, come on. That guy was a loser. Daniel should never have even given him a second thought, much less a punch to the face. Definitely not a broken nose. But that's what it takes for Daniel to realize what a mistake he's made. Not so much second-guessing Miyagi. That comes later. But in seeking a different teacher, Daniel wasn't just sidestepping Mr. Miyagi's wishes. He was violating the master-student compact. Worse, he was being shaped into a lethal weapon. Daniel's skills are already deadly. But making them deadly-er is not only foolish, it's fucking dangerous. Aggression has never been Daniel's style. But this is the first and only time he ever had to learn why. And he had to learn the hard way. And Daniel regrets what he did. It doesn't matter that the guy was a jerk. It doesn't even matter that he initiated the physical stuff by shoving Daniel around. There was no reason whatsoever for Daniel to escalate things the way he did. He could have let it go. He could have tested the waters and shoved the guy back. He could have done lots of things. But he chose to break the guy's face. That's a violation of everything Mr. Miyagi ever taught him. But it's the exact lesson Terry Silver taught him. And Daniel realized in that moment that he wasn't the victim. The bully was. So when Daniel goes to Silver and tells him thanks but no thanks on further lessons, that's when Daniel realizes the full implications of this thing. That's when he understands now what he's gotten himself into. John Kreese is alive and well, in spite of what Silver told him earlier, and all of this has been an elaborate scheme for Kreese to get revenge on Daniel and Mr. Miyagi. And it worked. I mean, you take everything else in the movie away, and that's the point. It doesn't matter what happens next. It doesn't matter if Daniel fights in the tournament. It doesn't matter if Daniel somehow defeats Barnes in the tournament. It doesn't matter if Daniel once again proves that Mr. Miyagi's karate is the path of true honor. John Kreese has already won. The minute Daniel showed up on Silver's doorstep looking for a new master, Kreese won. When Daniel accepted Silver's more brutal and inhumane karate techniques, Kreese won. The instant Daniel's fist made contact with that bully's nose, Kreese won. Daniel had been transformed into something Mr. Miyagi and Daniel himself never wanted him to be. And that meant Kreese won. So yeah, Mr. Miyagi shows up in the dojo and rescues Daniel. Yeah, he beats the shit out of, well first out of, out of Barnes, then out of Kreese, and then out of Silver. And hell, it's even the most impressive ass-kicking Mr. Miyagi ever doles out to anybody in any of the three movies. And yeah, then Mr. Miyagi agrees to train Daniel for the tournament to put this sick business to bed once and for all. But it doesn't matter. None of it matters. Kreese has already won. By making first Daniel and then Mr. Miyagi both violate all their principles and beliefs, 
by forcing both of them into situations where they had no choice but to go on the offensive. By, by pitting Mr. Miyagi, the master, against Daniel, the student, John Kreese fucking won. The lost dojo, the stolen prestige, the absent students, the never-ending humiliation. None of that shit matters anymore because John Kreese avenged everything. Go back to that fight in Kreese's dojo. Go back and watch it. Mr. Miyagi saved Daniel from Barnes. He could have let it go after that. He didn't have to go in there and kick the shit out of Silver and Kreese. For the first time, maybe ever, Mr. Miyagi fought on the offensive. In the first and second movies, he fought only in defense. He didn't chase after a conflict. He let attackers come to him, but he didn't initiate anything. It was strictly defensive. This time, he chose to walk into the dojo. He chose to confront Silver and Kreese. This is where Mr. Miyagi's been pushed to. Yeah, it's a cool moment in the movie, one of the coolest in all the movies. But it's also representative of Kreese's biggest victory. Yeah, Kreese lost the fight, but Mr. Miyagi chose the path of aggression. He played Kreese's game. That is Kreese's victory. When the fight's over, Mr. Miyagi knows who really won. Yeah, Barnes, Kreese, and Silver all got the hell beaten out of him, and there's no denying that. But did Mr. Miyagi win any kind of moral victory? Seems doubtful. From there, it's on to the tournament. And the reigning champion only has to face one challenger. That means Barnes has to do most of the heavy lifting through the tournament all by himself. Goes about the way you'd expect, too. Barnes beats the shit out of everybody he faces, and then it's Daniel's turn. Now, Daniel couldn't defeat Barnes any other time, so why should the tournament be any different? Especially when Barnes has no intention of abiding by the rules. And so, things go mostly the way you'd expect. Barnes pounds the fuck out of Daniel until they go into sudden death overtime. Daniel realizes that this entire time, he's tried to play Kreese's game, Kreese's way. So of course Kreese has been winning. Mr. Miyagi then gives Daniel arguably the most important lesson he's ever heard. Daniel doesn't want to get back up and face Barnes. He's sick of this. He's sick of losing. And he's afraid. Mr. Miyagi's issue is that it's, it's okay to lose, to, a, to, to lose a fight. There's always somebody better. There's no shame in that. But selling out and knuckling under in fear? Running away and hiding because you're afraid. That is defeat. That would be John Kreese's final victory. If Daniel doesn't get back to his feet and face whatever's in store for him, he'll truly be defeated. It's okay to lose to Barnes, but he can't be defeated by fear. And in that moment, that's exactly what Daniel needed to hear. After getting back to his feet, Daniel decides to alter his tactics. Rather than meet aggression with aggression, he reverts back to form. He remembers what Mr. Miyagi taught him from the beginning. He gives a bow of respect and acknowledgement first to Mr. Miyagi and then to Barnes, his opponent. And after that, Daniel centers himself using kata and waits for Barnes to come to him. Barnes doesn't disappoint either. Daniel lets him come in for the attack and then he fights defensively. He scores the point and wins the tournament. Daniel first 
had to decide to be a different man, a better man. And then he had to remember what Mr. Miyagi taught him from the first film. You, you can compare it to Star Wars if you want, but fighting with anger, fear, hatred, and aggression isn't the way to victory. So far, that's been the path to sure defeat. Daniel's... Daniel has to let go of those things because they're eating him alive. Doing kata before taking a defensive position against Barnes isn't just ballet designed to take advantage of Ralph Macchio's natural gift for footwork and rhythm. It's him, it's Daniel, reclaiming everything Mr. Miyagi tried like hell to teach him in the first film. The victory doesn't come from learning some brutal new moves to destroy Barnes. It comes from reasserting the ancient wisdom Mr. Miyagi's been teaching him all along. And this is, what it, this is why it completely fucking blows my mind when people say this movie sucks. It takes everything from the first two movies, all the lessons, all the morals, all the ethics, some of which Daniel paid for with his own blood, threw them all out the window and showed us why Daniel needed them in the first place. This is Daniel's darkest hour. The moment when he tried to turn his back on everything he'd ever been taught, and then he had to suffer for it. The pain, the blood, the anger, the aggression, these were Daniel's penance for rejecting his teacher. And for his own part, Mr. Miyagi had, he had to come to realize that he'd been a good teacher to Daniel. That had he really been a good friend? Daniel came to him with real problems. Mr. Miyagi was right to discourage competing in the tournament, there's no doubt about that, but did Mr. Miyagi really do right by Daniel by being so dismissive of him and his problems? For the first time, the easy and simple moral lines of, uh, of the first two films were called into question here in Karate Kid 3. Daniel and Mr. Miyagi can't be assumed to always be in the right with every decision they make and everything they say. Their morality is, for the first time, enveloped by shades of gray. And this all revolves around John Kreese, the real villain of the first film. Directly or indirectly, he drives every single problem, theme, conflict, moral, and challenge the characters face. I'm sorry, but isn't that what most trilogies are supposed to do? Anyway, so hopefully this, this helps you put Karate Kid 3 into some kind of better context. To me, the, the good far outweighs the bad. In my book, Karate Kid 3 is a worthy sequel, and also as good a send-off for the trilogy as any I could have asked for. Now, normally, this is where somebody would say, Now, of course, it isn't perfect, but it's pretty good. But honestly, guys, I'm at a serious fucking loss to identify any major problem with it. People, I had harsher things to say about the Matrix sequels than I do Karate Kid Part 3. It's fun to watch and actually says something about the characters. What more could anyone ask? Anyway, so that's that. Now it's time for a break. Be right back after these messages.
Now, introducing the We're Alive Fancast, a fancast dedicated to a story of survival. Hey, this is Mick. This is Redbeard. We would like to introduce our new fancast, in which we will be covering season four of the zombie podcast audio drama known as We're Alive. Join us as we review each episode as it comes out, leading into the conclusion of this great zombie story. We can be found at mickred.com, that's M-I-C-K-R-E-D.com, or by searching for We're Alive Fancast on iTunes and Facebook. Why do you think superheroes are so important? People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go. Up, up, and away! Atomic Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. If you like strange pop culture if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is if you like just that kind of stuff old radio um, obscure unmarketable pop culture uh, strange chiptune music um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the quake reversal satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something.
I'm back now and I've got some feedback to go through. First up, this is an email that comes from Zooey. Dated February the 25th. The title is episode 31. And he actually talks about a bunch of topics here. So first up, comic industry lifespan. I think that the comic, uh, the comics industry will keep going for a long time. Many decades. Maybe it won't be making stuff that you or I like, or DC and Marvel won't be, but it's healthier than it sometimes looks. Comic sales, print sales, have been up over the last couple of years, even though the publishers have embraced digital and cover prices have gone up, etc. Circulation will probably never be as high as it was in the newsstand era, but comics are still profitable, especially when people pay four bucks for a Marvel comic with a shitty cover. Digital, bookstores, and the New 52 have increased the customer base. Digital's not the bonanza that some people pretend it is, but it is a legitimate new revenue stream. There are a lot of nerds out there who love their tablet computer and don't have a comic shop anywhere nearby. I'm actually going to put this on pause here for a minute. And uh, Basically what happened was, um, I wanna, it might have been... I want to say it was Comic Book Resources. It might have been Newsarama, but I'm leaning towards Comic Book Resources. And what happened was there was an interview with uh, Jim Lee, and it was something like the New 52, like a year or a year and a half later, something like that, right? And one of the things that he threw out in passing, it's really not anything to do specifically with the New 52, but one little factoid that Jim Lee throughout and passing actually related to Smallville season 11 and he said that something like half of the Smallville sales that they were getting on uh, Comixology were coming from brand new customers in other words people that had never at the very least had never had a membership with Comixology now what people are taking from this is that Smallville fans people who didn't really follow the comics but nevertheless watched Smallville, basically bought the comic book. Right? Maybe they didn't go to comic book uh, stores to buy the paper issues, but they definitely uh, bought the, uh, the digital issues. And I've actually heard similar kinds of speculation with things like uh, Batman Beyond, Justice League Unlimited, and more recently, Batman 66, all of which I think are just fucking amazing ideas. Um, I'm, you know what, if I remember, I'll try to come back to this a little bit later on, but, um, I think I've actually got a couple of ideas for how, I don't know, I'm trying to think of maybe the, like, basically more ideas on, on what DC, <clears throat> DC can do to, to, uh, exploit non-comic, the non-comics crowd, I guess. So, uh, to get back into your email, though. I don't like the new 52. I'd given up on DC before that happened, but it did bring in new people and brought old people back. Smart stores turned a significant number of those people into new, steady customers. The shop in my town, Acme Comics in Greensboro, North Carolina, saw a lot of new faces when DC relaunched. They got to know those people and sold them on other stuff in addition to the new 52. So now, those people buy Image, IDW, Marvel, etc., as well as DC. Or, 
some of those people don't buy DC anymore, but they do buy other stuff. That's bad for DC, but it's still an increase for the industry as a whole. Every Wednesday since that relaunch happened, Acme's had a line of uh, people outside the shop before it even opens. I'm sure other stores don't see that kind of response, but they aren't the only one. Every store slash town is different. There are new readers. I've met them, talked to them, seen them in the shops. I'm 41 and I'm one of the older guys I see at the local shop. There are a lot of people in there who are younger than me and a fair number of kids. I want to put this on pause and say, um, what I think this is relating to is a comment I made <clears throat> in my uh, uh, the Mary Magnus Marching Society movie special where basically I threw out the proposition that there are no new readers. And so this, I think, is partly a, a response to that. Now... My premise there is really, maybe it would have been better phrased as, it's, maybe it's not that there are no new readers, it's, are there enough new readers to replace the ones that are giving up, or dying, or just whatever else? I mean, if, basically, if the ratio is anything less than one to one, it's a losing proposition. And so... And really, I think the whole thing was actually being done sort of in the broader context of... I guess I'm, I'm, there's really not a word for this phenomenon but or, or a term or some way to describe it, but it's basically this tendency that comic books have to change whenever a movie comes out, right? So I guess maybe the obvious example is that when, when Iron Man, the first Iron Man, uh, came out, in fairly short order... Tony Stark in the comics stopped being written like Tony Stark in the comics and became written more like Robert Downey Jr. Which, to be honest with you, I, I could give two fucks about Iron Man, Tony Stark, or whatever else. So if he's written more like Robert Downey Jr., fine by me. But there are people who have collected Iron Man their whole lives and rather like Tony Stark and maybe don't appreciate him being written as Robert Downey Jr. I don't know. And so, but obviously, the idea there is to appeal to people who only know Iron Man from from film, right? And my beef with that at the time is, look, it's fine to do that if it works, but based on the things that I've at least seen, it doesn't work. And now, I'm not trying to dismiss your evidence. And in fact, what I've noticed is your experience at Acme Comics in Greensboro, North Carolina... I've not heard of that happening in tons of other places, but I have heard of it. And all I can speak to, though, is my own LCS experience and say that their numbers are not radically different now as compared to what they were before. And so, and that's that. And so, look, oh, and, and like I said, I mean, there's always the comicsology thing where Smallville Season 11 was a huge hit. And still is, as far as I know. I mean, that's a that's a big part of DC's uh, digital push. And so, I'm not saying that these things don't matter. I'm just saying that... Well, anyway. Get back in the email. I can imagine a time when DC and Marvel are a smaller part of the industry because readers seem to want a very narrow range of comics from them. Lately, they can't make successful series that aren't part of long-established franchises like Avengers or Batman. People won't buy it. 
It's not like the 80s when they could launch stuff like Blue Devil or Booster Gold or New Warriors or whatever. Either it's already big or it's not worth reading, apparently. But people will buy new ideas from other publishers. Yeah, and you know, to be, I'm, and this is me talking, not Trent, I'm putting the email on pause. I've kind of, I've noticed that myself, you know, where people are really willing to take risks and chances with new material from, say, Image Comics that they're not really willing to do with Marvel. And it's, it's, I don't, that's just, it's a weird thing. I really cannot explain that. That's, it's a weird thing. So get back in your email. It might be that comics will go entirely digital at some point, but I don't think so. Part of the squee over, over digital products comes from people loving their new gadgets. As those uh, gadgets become less new and more normal, the coolness and exuberance about them decreases. Even with music, vinyl sales have been going steadily up over uh, for several years. There's always a market for a real version of a product. Music sales got screwed so hard by digital because the industry moved so slowly to address it, and they also undermined the market for CDs by overcharging for them at record stores, the outlets who actually promoted the medium, and let big box stores sell them at a, at a loss leader price. They destroyed their own distribution system. That's one mistake the comics industry didn't make. If in the early 2000s, comics had been three bucks at a comic book shop but a buck at Best Buy, comics would be dead now because the specialty shops would be out of business and the big box stores would have dropped comics the second their spread sheets showed they weren't bringing in people to buy fridges and TVs. As it is, comic shops are still the majority of the marketplace and digital, while growing, is still secondary. Now, you put a lot of stuff in there. I, 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 need, to, I need some time to unpack all of this. Basically, I guess to kind of take it from the top, as far as digital distribution, honestly, I think the people who are excited about that, they really do mean it. And I'm, I'll just point to myself as being an obvious example here. In a perfect world, I would be able to buy all the comics that I want in paper format. This is not a perfect world. Unfortunately, the... The economic circumstances that I'm facing now means that I can't really afford to buy any comics, uh, really at all, right? And so what I usually end up doing is just waiting until they, you know, the price comes down on um, on the digital versions and just read those. And and then I also have, I've also amassed a sort of nice collection of back issues. So I've, I've scanned back issues, I should say. So if I want to read like the first twelve issues of of Superman, Volume 1, from, when was that, 1940, 1939 or 1940? I can do that, you know? And what, I, what I've noticed is that digital allows me to just burn through these things. I can read so fucking many comics in one day if, I, if I'm serious about doing it, right? Whether it's just for my own pleasure or if it's for... Uh, my podcast or just whatever I can do that you know and the fact that it, it's this easy to do I can read this many on my iPad and carry basically what amounts to volumes of comics around with me anywhere I want to go I just wouldn't be able to do that with 
with the the paper issues. Now, I understand the analogy that you're making with music and vinyl sales. And by the way, that's absolutely true. Guys, just here's a free business tip for anybody who's interested. You want to get fucking rich? Start a vinyl pressing factory, all right? You will, you'll have more work than you'll know what to do with because peop, there's only like four or five vinyl factories in the, in, in the entire fucking country right now, all right? And believe me, they're all up to their eyeballs in work. So you want to get rich right now? Fucking open up a vinyl factory. You'll you'll make your money back. No lickety split. Don't have a fit. So now, and I understand the the, the analogy that you're making there. And in fact, actually, you know what? I kind of considered myself to be one of the vinyl guys back in the '90s. I did actually. I didn't get very far with it, but I did start collecting a few vinyl things. And I, I can kind of see the allure because there is a sound quality that vinyl has that really nothing else does. You know, CDs or whatever else. They don't have that. And so apart from it just being, and fuck, MP3s definitely don't have it. Even if they're transferred from vinyl, they don't have it. So believe me, I understand the point that you're making there, that vinyl has a leg up as far as some people concerned, as far as legitimacy over CDs and God knows over MP3s. And I, you also, again, I cannot argue with you on this. You say that basically the music business fucked themselves because they were so slow to embrace digital that basically if it wasn't for Steve Jobs, I don't think there would be a music industry. Had it not been for iTunes coming to the rescue, the music industry as, well, first off, the music industry as we knew it is long gone, long gone, all right? They're not, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, I don't think the music industry is part of major media anymore, right? Major media, you've got things like, you know, media companies, TV uh, TV broadcasters, movie studios, and to some degree, you're actually starting to now have internet content providers, right? I don't think the music business belongs in that, in, in that uh, group anymore because it's just so fucking small now. So, yeah, anyway, and you're absolutely right. Like I said, the music business just pretty much fucked themselves. And like I said, if they, if it wasn't for Steve Jobs... They wouldn't be in business anymore, you know? And at the same time, though, I don't think it was so much that it was distribution. And I think you, uh, you, I don't think you came right out and said this. You don't blame it on distribution, but you don't explicitly say so either. But it wasn't distribution so much that got him in the end. It was, like you said, it was uh, basically the prices that they'd set at big box. And so. What I was going for with, and where what I think the conversation I was going for with uh, that movie uh, show that I had with the Mary Magnus Marching Society was, <clears throat> basically, if you were to put cheap comics into easy to find retail outlets and and basically make it for make it easy for Joe uh, Joe Sixpack consumer to buy the shit. Sales are necessarily going to go up, you know. Now, what it takes to get a comic book into, I don't know, a toy store now or a supermarket or something like that, there may be distribution channels there that simply don't fucking exist anymore and would have to be rebuilt. I'm well aware. Or let me rephrase that. I'm well aware of how much I'm not aware of, put it that way. And so I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and say that you know, you can just snap your fingers and everything is just going to work perfect, right? I, I'm, I'm not going to make that argument. 
My argument is that price is ultimately going to sell these things. Now, if what you're doing is undercutting your main distribution network in the process, i.e. the local comic shop, yeah, you're going you're, you're gonna to kill yourself. There's no question about it. But the only reason that digital comics, and this is the point, the only reason that digital comics tend to cost about the same as the paper issues is because basically digital cannot prop up the comic book industry right now. Again, you said that same thing. It's growing, but digital is still secondary. So, you know, you and I seem to agree agree on that. You outright said so. And and But the fact is there's less overhead with with digital, they don't have to do printing, they don't have to do transport, they don't have to do distribution, they don't have to go through, I don't think they have to go through Diamond for anything. I mean, basically, digital is, ba it's about as direct between the comic companies and the end consumer as you can possibly get. And that pretty much leaves the LCS out in the, out in the cold. So if they were to sell the digital, the digital stuff for 99 cents, you'd basically kill, you'd basically kill the, uh, the golden goose, which is to say the comic stores, without really being able to completely make up for that with, with digital. So believe me, I understand the economics that are in play there, but at the same time, that's the only reason that, that digital comics are, are not priced lower. And it actually blows my mind how many people don't seem to understand that, because DC, they've gotten absolutely torn apart about that, and I would have thought their thinking there is kind of obvious. And plus, you know, whenever they sell a digital comic at full retail price, I mean, that's higher profit for them, you know? So they, at least in the short term, they, they don't have an immediate incentive to lower the cost because the margin is so much higher even, and people are clearly, to some degree, willing to pay it. Now, where the rubber meets the road <clears throat> on all of this is that if digital was, I don't know, a buck ninety-nine and paper was a buck ninety-nine and you had distribution channels going in, I don't know, uh, Best Buy, uh, Toys R Us, basically big retail places like that, but don't let them do loss leader prices, all right? Basically, they're charging the same prices can, as can be found anyplace else, right? A buck ninety-nine is what you pay for a new comic book, paper or digital, no exceptions. My feeling is that their sales would, would ultimately go up. I truly fucking believe it. And you know what? Look, maybe I'm wrong, right? But it, it just kind of seems to me that when I look back on my formative experiences collecting comics, it really did not involve comic book stores, at least not right away. The formative experiences were always things like Walden books, things like uh, uh, supermarkets and, and, and places like that, distribution channels like that, completely. I mean, I think, you know, this, well, let me think, this was probably the late the late 80s and early 90s. So I think at that point, actually, the LCS may have been the main distribution network by that point. But still, there was a place for, I guess you could say, standard retail outlets. And, and uh, so and, and I can't help but think that my experience is probably not very unique. And there were other other people who fell in love with, with comics that got into them the same way I did. Anyway, so... Look, I understand what you're saying, and there's even a big extent to which I, dude, I agree with you. You know, I'm, it, number one, the music business killed themselves, and number two, if you follow that same formula, guess what? You're going to kill yourself too, comics industry. So I understand your point. You're right. It's just there are some nuances here that, that honestly, I think they they just need to be explored, right? Now, 
as to successful comics and the like, basically one of the things that I've noticed is that there have been a shitload of spin-off comics lately. And I guess by that what I mean is you have Smallville Season 11. You've got Superman. You had uh, Superman Beyond. I don't know if that book is still around, but you had Superman Beyond. You had Justice League Unlimited. You had uh, Batman Beyond. You have Batman 66. And there's some other things, uh, too. And it's kind of made me think, is this the future, uh, you know, for certain comics? I mean, basically, for things... for Resurrecting, I guess you could say, old media, right? Things like Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. And then making a comic book spinoff out of that. Resurrecting the the Richard Donner Superman and then making a comic book spinoff out of that, you know, on and on and on. Is there a market there to be explored? Or here's one like the post Batman returns, Tim Burton, uh, version of Batman, right? Well, what did he do after Batman returns? Right? Things like that. And basically things like Batman 66 and Smallville and thing, they've just kind of made me wonder those books have been so fucking popular, so popular, that it just kind of makes me wonder, is there a market here that's not being exploited? And I kind of have to think there is. If Smallville is anything to judge by, yeah, yeah, I believe it. Yeah, I think, and it just kind of makes me wonder, are we going to see more of this stuff? Now, honestly, a great big part of me would kind of like to see, you know, Lois and Clark season five. Or Superman 3, the Richard Donner version, or Batman 3, the Tim Burton version, you know, things like that. And I would actually be kind of fucking interested to see that. If for no other reason, then, you know, you could have uh, Tim Burton a sort of, I don't know if I want to say editor, but, you know, plotter, story idea, consultant, I don't know. Something. And basically make it clear that this is explicitly a continuation of the Tim Burton Batman, and then run with it. And hell, why, you know, why limit it there? Do the same thing with, you know, the Joel Schumacher Batman. Fuck, I'd buy that. You all know I'd buy that. I like the Joel Schumacher Batman. Just like I like the Tim Burton Batman to me. They're both fucking Batman. And it just kind of makes me think, is that the future of things? Is basically resurrecting old media, is that going to be a new cash cow for the comics industry? And it just, it just kind of makes me wonder... I think there's, I think there's, there, there, there's juice to the idea. So anyway, get back in the, into the email though. Trends I'd love to see go away. Realism and magical psychos, which go hand in hand. Is this what would really happen if someone got superpowers? No, because superpowers are impossible, made up, imaginary fantasy. Nothing real could ever really happen with an unreal thing. Magic psychos are characters like the Joker, or Dexter, or the governor in Walking Dead. They're always in stories that are supposed to be gritty and grounded and realistic, but they are the most fantastical elements of the story. The Joker can sneak into a Gotham police station and murder loads of cops by hand, as in Death of the Family, and yeah, I know, I had a very hard time belie- believing that myself, by the way. And, But the Joker can sneak into a Gotham police station and murder loads of cops by hand because he's crazy, man! 
Dexter can always outthink all the cops, all the feds, and manipulate everyone in his life because he's crazy, man. The governor can command a whole town and take out groups of U.S. soldiers because he's just so crazy, man. If they were in more unrealistic stories, like Silver Age comics or something, they wouldn't bother me. It's because they're always part of these things that are praised for their realism that they're so damn annoying. But they do reveal that the appeal of these stories are not their realism, quote-unquote, or their believability, quote-unquote, but their violence and soap operatic drama. You can put the most absurd kind of violence in a story, and as long as it's all in a low light, and there's plenty of grime and blood, people will call it realistic. I'm going to put this on pause and say, A fucking men, brother. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. <sighs> Look, right now, we seem to be in a... Honestly, this kind of stagnant period in, in media culture to where the only types of stories that a lot of, or at least that people think we want to see, are these sort of dark, foreboding, really gritty and violent and bloody and kind of gory types of stories. And number one, I think that if that's true, that says a lot of really sad fucking things about America and our immediate short-term future. But number two, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people, I think one of the things that Star Wars proves to us whether you like the prequels or not, one of the things that Star Wars prequels prove to us is that people still want their imagination to be tickled, you know? And there have been all sorts of imagine, uh, of sort of just imagination-heavy movies that have come out in recent years. Things that are just way over-the-top type sci-fi or fantasy or science fantasy or just, or whatever else, you know? And, you know, very operatic type stuff. And... Those things have actually done very, very well. And I think the track record of dark, realistic bullshit is actually a lot more mixed than some people want to admit. But I guess the content producers all seem to think, you know, the media companies and whatnot, they all seem to think that we want dark, macabre violence, right? Like, And I think maybe the worst example that I can think of is Batman Earth 1 Volume 1. They think that's where the zeitgeist is and honestly there's so little out else out there to choose from there's it's hard for me to justify it except to say that i don't agree i don't think batman earth one volume one is where the popular taste is right now at all i think people want to go back to dreaming and hoping and believing in tomorrow and and looking forward to the future you know flying cars and and magic star or not magic but you get the idea sort of high-tech star trek type stuff you know technology and transporters and all this other cool stuff you know in the future is going to be a, just a fun fucking cool place to live it's going to be a great place to raise a family and all this stuff. you know i think that's what people want to believe about the future but literally everything they see about the future everything that's coming down the pipeline is always about how just fucking shitty the future is going to be because of how fucking shitty the present moment is, how dark everything is, how terrible, bloody, violent, all that stuff. <clears throat> and it just it just makes me fucking sad. And anyway, so all of this though is my way of saying yes, I completely fucking agree with you. The whole uber powerful magical psycho guy that can somehow do everything just because he's he's crazy, you know? I mean, come on. And in fact, you know what? Look, 
I feel like in a lot of ways, other people have kind of said my piece about Chris Nolan for me. But I kind of agree with you. You know, the Joker in The Dark Knight is basically exactly everything that you're talking about here, you know? And the example that I always think of is, you remember that big armored car chase where the police have Dent and Harvey Dent in a protective custody and the Joker's all chase, uh, he's chasing them around and he's shooting at the van with machine guns and all this stuff. And to me, that is one of the biggest fucking plot holes in the entire movie, you know? What was the Joker's plan there? He outright said he truly thought Dent was Batman. He thought he was shooting at Batman. Obviously, then, I assume he was trying to kill Batman. So it makes it kind of interesting that the Joker somehow fucking planned to be caught. And then he arranged to have Harvey Dent kidnapped, in spite of the fact that he said just moments ago he thought Batman was Harvey. So how could he have planned for Harvey to get kidnapped? And it's just, it fucking doesn't make any sense. But hey, he's crazy, man. So he can he can fucking pull all this stuff off. He can think 12 steps ahead of everybody else. I mean, God, it's just fucking bullshit. Anyway, that, 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 was the move, that was the moment when The Dark Knight just completely fucking fell apart for me. Now, I'm not saying there are no good parts of the movie. I'm just saying that as far as it trying to be serious cinema, just fucking fell apart for me, you know? And that whole magical psycho thing. A fucking men, brother. You fucking nailed it there. So good job. Anyway, to get back into the email, though, I disagree that the end of Done and Ones is due to trades or casual readers. I think that events, quote-unquote, and constantly continued stories are done to cater to the comic shop. Wednesday Warriors customers. Those events sell very well in comic shops. The hardcore fans get really excited about that stuff. It plays to the sense of comic stories being, quote-unquote, important which is the new collectible. Because supposedly big things happen and you want to be there to see it. The things that sell well at bookstores among casual readers are the out-of-continuity evergreen things like Watchmen, Dark Knight, and so on. That's why DC does so much better in bookstores, even though Marvel usually has the better, the better market share in comic shops. DC has those standalone stories, while for Marvel... Everything is in continuity, and it's all supposedly part of one big story. Other things that do well in bookstores, like Walking Dead and Manga, may have many volumes per series, but every series is its own thing and not part of an interrelated universe. I.e., there might be a bajillion volumes of One Piece, but it never crosses over with Naruto or Sailor Moon, and Invincible doesn't cross over with Walking Dead. Also, if you look at DC's publishing practices, they really want you to buy the monthly issues, not the trades. They wait a long time between monthlies and trades, and if the series has decent sales, they do a hardcover collection first, then wait months before releasing the reasonably priced softcover. Now they're reviving weekly series to further incite people into the, into the shop every week. They were writing off hardcore customers, rather, if they were writing off hardcore customers, they wouldn't invest editorial and production resources into two concurrent weekly series, Batman Eternal and Future's End. And those series will barely be seen anywhere but comic shops, and if previous weekly series are any indication, they won't do very well as trades. And honestly, yeah, I tend to agree with that, but 
I don't know. Maybe it's just that they're trying to be everything to everyone. I don't know. But anyway, get back into your email. <clears throat> Uh, in my opinion, the reason the co that current comics move so slowly <clears throat> and read so quickly is not because they're waiting for trades, but because they're trying to be cinematic. They have lots of large, wide panels to imitate a movie screen. They do lots of splash pages or half-page panels that imitate establishing shots from movies. They spend a page or more imitating a sweeping crane shot or a camera panning across a big area. They use several panels to show relatively simple action, or break down a simple exchange of punches and kicks into many panels of second-by-second -second movement, because that looks more like a movie. They don't use narration boxes or thought balloons because that's too comic booky, i.e., not like those realistic and sophisticated movies. Movies make so much money, so they must be a higher art form, right? <clears throat> So after your comic book is filled with splash pages and pages with two or three panels and every scene is broken down into slow frame-by-frame -frame style sequences, you might have 20 or so pages that look more like a movie, but you've only told five minutes worth of that movie's story, to which I have to agree. I th well, to be honest with you, though, I'm not sure how much of a new thing this really is, but either way, I've noticed that the comic book as a format has had way too big a boner for them for film as a format for way too long. And honestly, if you listen to any time Kevin Smith does a does a um, an interview with on a Fat Man on Batman, especially with a penciler, but to some degree with writers too, he always brings up to him. I think it seems probably like high praise. It's like, wow, this comic book is so cinematic. And therein is the problem, you know? And I don't think he sees it, you know? Uh, I regard Kevin Smith as being, and maybe this is going to piss people off, I don't know. But I regard him as being, I guess, if you want to think of fanboy culture or geek culture or whatever as, as, as like a religion, you could say that Kevin Smith is an initiate, you know, he's the lowest guy on the rung. He doesn't really know very much. He hasn't really read very much. And his familiar his familiarity with the source material, I think, is way overestimated. But his understanding of comics as a format, I'm just not impressed with, to be honest with you. You know, the idea of telling stories in comics... And honestly, I think Kevin Smith is a lot more representative of your average comic book buyer. And I'm not talking about people who only care about movies. I'm talking about even people who buy the comics, collect the comics. Dare I say, even have a very solid grasp of continuity and history. Even they don't seem to understand that comics are a format for telling stories that literally no other, form, no other medium can quite hang with. And the idea of making comics more cinematic, that may result in prettier pictures and bullshit like that, but it doesn't necessarily play to the strengths of comic books. And so, honestly, I think, I think the Kevin Smith thing is actually a lot more common than people want to admit. But anyway. Well, anyway, so that's basically the end of the email. Uh, he finishes it off by saying, keep up the great show. And thank you. I, 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 
I intend to. And that's number one. But number two, thank you for this for this email. I mean, obviously, it's a long fucking email, but I don't see that as a bad thing. I like long emails because it gives me a, a lot to talk about. This email pretty much punched me right in the nuts because you raised a lot of good points, and parts of them I hadn't really considered. Does that make sense? I hadn't really... I hadn't really given a whole lot of thought to, to some aspects of this. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, and tell you that you changed my mind about everything, but you did bring up a lot of good points about things that I haven't... that I haven't... I don't know. I just hadn't really thought too much about before, and as a result, I've kind of changed my opinion about a few things. And... It's just a good email. I mean, this is... It was just... It was long. It was thought-provoking. It was obviously conversation... or monologue-inducing... And I don't know, it just, this is a good email. This is a really good email. So thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to uh, send it to me. And uh, that's, I think, about all the email I have time for this week. So uh, for those of you who want to send me an email, uh, your that those can be sent to trennismagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S. M-A-G-N-U-S Trentus Magnus at gmail.com and just go ahead and send it over to me. Now, fair warning, anything that you send to me is going to be read on mic. The exception to that is if you outright say don't read this on mic and then obviously I won't. But otherwise, I assume that everything that gets sent in to me is intended for, for my show and I'll treat it accordingly. Also, guys, I always need more iTunes reviews so if you can... Uh, seek out my uh, feed on iTunes. You can find it by searching for uh, Two True Freaks Presents Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. And if you can, just file some kind of positive review or something. It's just going to help me become more visible on iTunes. And then, ideally, my audience will expand from there. So I'd really appreciate it if some of you could take the time to do that. If you If you haven't done it already, just please consider doing so. And I would, uh, I would really appreciate it. So other than that, I think that's about it. So bye, everybody. I'll talk to you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at Two True Freaks dot com which is spelled t-w-o-t-r-u-e-f-r-e-a-k-s you can also find it on facebook just by searching for trentus magnus punches reality there you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when i put them up you can friend me on facebook by searching for trentus magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. 
Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick easy and can help you spread the word about your show i'm always looking for more promos to play keep it fairly short and yours could be next my promos can be found at this show's homepage. for those interested just look for the promo section the contents of this podcast are fictitious hypothetical and probably completely unnecessary any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Talent agent says, what do you call an act like that? Guy says, the aristocrats.